Good morning. If you'd like to open your Bible to uh, the book of Galatians, we'll start there. Now we're continuing our series on uh, men and women in the church. And uh, even though everything that we've taught has been non-controversial at all, and everyone has agreed with everything we've been teaching, we're going to look at some common objections that come up. I am being a little bit sarcastic there. Because maybe you have had some suggestion, uh, some objections. Maybe you're not quite sure about some of the things we've taught. Maybe you're confused. Maybe some verses have come to mind that you thought, well, what about this verse? Or what about this person in the Bible? So we, we want to deal with some of those object, objections. And I know that some, sometimes when we, when we study the scriptures... Uh, things can be confusing. Like Peter says, that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. And we should acknowledge that. We should be humble enough to acknowledge that sometimes these things are difficult to understand, and we could be wrong. On the other hand, we shouldn't just throw up our hands and say, well, everyone has their own interpretation, and we can't really know what's true. Instead, we should really strive to know what the Bible says and understand as best as we can as the Lord gives us light in, that, in those areas. So before we get into this, let's pray. Our Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it, that we can study it. Uh, we pray that you give us diligence in our study. We pray that you would help us be humble, uh, that you give us light, and that we'd be patient as we try to understand these things. Pray that you be with me as I teach. Pray that I would only speak the truth and that you bless those who hear it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, there's, there's common, some common objections that we'll deal with today. And the first one comes out of Galatians 3, verse 28. So if you want to turn there. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So some people say that this, this verse settles the argument, all arguments related to men and women, gender roles. They say, well, see, Paul here says there is no male and female. Therefore, men and women can fulfill any role that they want. Women can be pastors. You know, all these other verses don't, don't really matter anymore. However, it's not a, a good uh, principle to take a single verse and make that the paradigm through which you interpret the rest of the scriptures. And in addition to that, we have to ask ourselves, is that really what this verse is teaching? Now you notice that I didn't actually read the context of that verse. I only read that one verse. And that's kind of how you have to read that if you're going to reach that conclusion. Because as soon as you look at the context, that interpretation doesn't really hold up. So let's think about the, the broader context of the book of Galatians. What, what is the book of Galatians about? What's going on? What is, what is Paul addressing? Does anybody care to venture an answer? Uh, they're foolish. Yeah, they're foolish, but why? There's a specific reason why Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians. It's because they were turning away from the gospel of Christ back to the elements of the law, right? <clears throat> They were trying to make the Gentiles fulfill the law, keep the law, in order to be saved. 
And that's why uh, Paul says that they're foolish. He deals this by, by asking a couple of questions, at least two questions. Uh, what does it mean to be a Jew? In, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Do we receive the Spirit by keeping the law? The answer is no. Are we justified by the law? The answer is no, we're justified by faith. The, the answer that, that Paul is giving is that all of this is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by keeping the law, not by the works of the law. However, some people in this church were in danger of turning away from Christ, away from faith in him, and trying to keep the law uh, to do good works to, to gain their salvation or keep their salvation. Peter, the apostle Peter, even had to re- be rebuked for this. Right? He stopped eating with the Gentiles, and Paul rebuked him for that. And there were people who were in danger of following that error. So as we look at the broader context of Galatians, we don't see this being an issue. Gender roles is not an issue. Then when we look at the immediate context of the verse itself, we also see that there is not this gender role idea in mind. So look at verse 26, starting there. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul's not addressing gender roles any more than he's addressing the issue of slavery in this verse or in this section. If he was, if he was addressing slavery, Philemon, the book of Philemon wouldn't make any sense. Because there is no slave or free anymore, right? So why would Paul write a book saying free the slave if there's no slave or free? Romans 1, dealing with homosexuality would be completely unnecessary. Because if there's no more male or female, then homosexuality isn't a problem, right? And there's other passages we've talked about that simply would not make a sense or would not be necessary at all in Scripture if there's no more male or female. What Paul is addressing is equality, and I realize that that term has been misused these days, but he's addressing equality in Christ between all people. A Jew does not have better access to God than a Gentile. A man does not have better access to God than a woman. A slave does not have lesser access to God than a free man. All of us are equal. There are no spiritual superiors based on sex, based on social status, based on uh, ethnicity. None of that matters before Christ, because all that matters is faith in Christ. Paul could have added rich or poor, young or old, black or white, smart and unintelligent. All of these people are saved in the same way, by faith in Christ, not by works. And if we back up even a couple more verses, we see that... Paul says all people, in in verse 23, all people are slave to the law. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. All people are justified by faith, in verse 24. All people are set free from the bonds of the law, in verse 25. All are sons of God in Christ, in verse 26. All are clothed in Christ, in verse 27. All belong to Christ and are heirs according to the promise, in verse 29. The phrase, you are all one in Christ, does not destroy 
the distinctions between the parts. It doesn't destroy the fact that I'm a man and you're a female. It doesn't destroy the fact that some people at that time were slaves and some were free. There still are distinctions between the parts. There's a diversity in the body of Christ. Greek and Jew are different. Male and female are different. Slave and free are different. But they all share this commonality and that salvation is the same for each of them. In that sense, there is equality between all who are in Christ because all have equal access to God through him. Equality in parts, however, does not destroy the function of the parts. An eye still functions as an eye, a hand as a hand, and so on. And these remain important in their several functions. So the overall context of Galatians, the book itself doesn't indicate that Paul is worried about gender roles in this verse. The immediate context of verse 28 does not uh, indicate that there's a, a, a concern with gender roles in this. And really anything related to gender roles coming out of this verse is being read into it by the person. Let's, uh, let's move now to Ephesians 5.21. That would be the next verse where people bring up the subjection. Verse 21 of chapter 5 says, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. So the argument coming out of this, and again, notice I didn't read the context. Uh, This verse is used by some to say, well, it says that submitting to one another, right? So this is a mutual submission between people, all people, regardless of rank or role. That means, therefore, there are no gender roles anymore. There's no marital, marital roles anymore. Even with some argue there's no authority structures anymore. They would also argue, well, if wives are told to submit to their husbands, this is only in the context of mutual submission. So there's really nothing particularly special about the command of a wife to submit to the husband because verse 21 says, well, essentially the husband is also supposed to submit to the wife. However, we have to ask ourselves again, is that what verse 21 really means? Is verse 21 really telling everyone to submit to everyone? If you think about that for a minute, you kind kind of see that there's something that doesn't really work. If everyone's supposed to submit to everyone and there's no more authority structure. But anyway. So yes, mutual submission is commanded in, in some sense. But the following verses, right after that, The following verses are an explanation of what 21 means, right? It says that wives are supposed to submit to their own husbands. Children are supposed to submit to parents and slaves to masters. And while, yes, it is a good idea to be humble and to love one another and to be willing to submit to each other, that's not what verse 21 is actually teaching. And the, the, uh, any, any interpretation of that word submit does not do justice to what the Greek actually says. The word submission in the Greek always, without exception, always has reference to a relationship where one party has authority over another party. There's 31 instances of that word in the New Testament, and they all carry that meaning. If you're going to say that this does not mean that, it is the only place in the New Testament where it doesn't mean that. That's a pretty hard argument to make, too. 
So just a few examples. I'm not going to go through all 31 examples, but Jesus submitted to his parents. The demons submitted to the disciples. Uh, the flesh submits to the law. Creation is submitted to humility, uh, futility. The Jews are submitted to God's righteousness. The citizens are to submit to ruling authorities. And Christians are to submit to God. And there's many, many more, but I think you get the idea. In short, verse 21 here can't merely mean submitting it to one another out of humility or respect or love. It, always, it has a reference to one person submitting to another because that person has some kind of authority over them. And again, keeping this in context is very important. This is a hermeneutic principle that we should all be aware of. When you quote a verse and you don't look out of con- at the context of that verse, there's a very real danger that you're going to get the meaning of that verse wrong. Right? One of the, one of the most famous verses that's, that's almost universally taken out of context is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, it's some athlete playing baseball or something. It's like, yeah, that's not really what that means in any sense. <laughs> okay, so any questions so far? <clears throat> All right. The, the next uh, objection that, that we come across is, uh, actually comes out of slavery. Uh, some would say you know, slavery may not be an obvious objection, but some Christians will reason that, well, slavery is evil. We all acknowledge that slavery is evil. Yet the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery. Therefore, since the Bible commands both slaves to submit to their master and Wives to submit to their husbands, both of them must be a cultural thing. And therefore, neither of them is necessary anymore. Right? So the reasoning is if slavery is evil and God is giving a command about slavery, and he then gives the same command about wives and husbands, either you have to accept both or throw both away, and because slavery is evil, we're going to throw both of them away. By the way, you'd also have to throw away children submitting to parents in that scenario. But you don't generally hear that argument being made very much. So in other words, God didn't create slavery. Uh, He merely regulated it. Therefore, God didn't create male headship. He merely regulated it. And because both of them are not created by God, then both should be discarded. But again, we have to ask ourselves, is this really what the Bible teaches? So first, we have to ask, what does the Bible say about slavery? Now, it's true, in, at least in some sense. I'm going to contradict myself in a minute, but in some sense, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. It does actually regulate it. But when we think of slavery as Americans, we usually think of the African slave trade, correct? We think of ships going to Africa, buying people who are kidnapped, and then shipping them back to the New World. That actually is condemned by Scripture. Uh, But that's not the context that Paul was writing in. Okay, Paul was writing in a very different context. Uh, And and as an aside, actually, the Bible does talk about slavery a lot. But the kind of slavery the Bible seems to be more concerned with is slavery to sin, not slavery to men. This is just an interesting thing that I thought of. So first, um, Paul and Jesus and the, the apostles, they're not primarily interested in social and political revolution. 
their primary concern was spiritual revolution. And when there is a spiritual revolution, everywhere you see where there's a spiritual revolution, there does follow in its wake a social and political revolution as well. Secondly, the Bible does not condemn slavery outright because slavery in that day was not always, shockingly, undesirable. Sometimes people would actually sell themselves into slavery. They would willingly become slaves because slavery could be a way to escape poverty, abject poverty. Now, when we think of poverty in our day, we think of, you know, like, for instance, you ever see a homeless person who's fat? That's a very American thing. You would not be poor and fat in, in Paul's day, right? It was, very, it was a very, very dire situation to be uh, poor in that day. And slavery was one way that they could actually escape poverty. Some would sell themselves into slavery to get out of debt. Some would sell themselves into slavery in order to become Roman citizens. It was a very desirable thing to be a Roman citizen. So slavery was a way to gain actually a better social status. So it wasn't always unwanted. It was not necessarily permanent either. There were ways to get out of slavery. Uh, there, you could buy yourself out of slavery. A, a relative could buy your way out of slavery. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were several ways to get out. Every six years, slaves were supposed to be set free. So even if you did sell yourself into slavery, you knew there was an end to that at some point. Uh, during the year of Jubilee, slaves were to be set free, and they were to receive back their inheritance as well. Now, slavery was not all rainbows and butterflies, however. It could be a horrible existence. Slaves, uh, masters could treat their slaves very poorly, uh, to the point of being sexually degraded in that situation. And so Paul does address that. He does address how a slave is supposed to act toward their master and how a master is supposed to act toward the slave. So though slavery is not outright condemned, it is at the same time not celebrated and it's certainly not commanded. It's not commended as a good thing. At creation, we see work was given to Adam and this was a good thing. A, a, a wife was given to Adam, and that was a good thing. But we don't see slavery being commanded and being called a good thing anywhere in Scripture. In fact, uh, Chrysostom, the, the uh, pastor in the 4th century, talks about slavery. And he says this, Slavery is the fruit of covetousness, of degradation, of savagery. Since Noah, we know he had no servant, nor had Abel, nor Seth, nor they who came after them. The thing was the fruit of sin or rebellion against parents. So Chrysostom says that slavery is an evil thing. It came out of evil. Uh, the, you know, Noah, the patriarchs, they didn't have slaves. This was not something that God wanted them to do. On the other hand, when he talks about uh, submission of wives to husbands, he assumes that this is an unqualified good thing, that this is the way that the Lord would have it to be. He says, because when they are in harmony, the children are well brought up, the domestics are in good order, and neighbors and friends and relations enjoy the fragrance. And just as when the generals of an army are at peace with one another, all things are in due subordination. So I say it is here. Wherefore he saith, wives be in submission to your husbands as unto the Lord. So he sees the submission of wives to husbands as a good thing. 
And he sees the result of that submission is evidence of that good thing as well. Uh, Fourthly, uh, regarding slavery, is that the slavery that developed in the New World, which I already mentioned, is condemned by the Bible. Exodus 21.16 says, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So the African slave trade was a capital crime. They were literally going to Africa. They would pay people to kidnap others, and then they would buy them and sell them as slaves. And that's exactly what Exodus 21.16 says is a crime, a capital crime. 1 Timothy 1.10 says that kidnappers are ungodly. So this is clearly not something that the Bible condones uh, as a practice. Now, Paul, while not condemning this form of slavery that was happening in his day, did actually encourage slaves to gain their freedom when when possible. When Paul sent Onesimus back to his owner Philemon, uh, he says this in verses 15 and 16. For perhaps he, that is Onesimus, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, by how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he tells Philemon, you should set Onesimus free. You should, you should not consider him a slave. So I think this is the point we need to keep in mind about slavery. Every situation involving sin is contrary to God's design. Is that right? That's slavery. And yet God does give us instructions for how to deal with those situations, does he not? Think about abandonment. You know, it's just a, a different example. When a husband or a wife abandons their spouse. God does tell us how to deal with that. That doesn't mean that he approves of it, but he does give us instructions on how to deal with it. And it's the same with slavery. Just because God is dealing with slavery does not mean that he approves of it. So the Bible doesn't commend slavery as a good thing, but it does regulate the practice of it, whereas it, it existed. And it doesn't mean it was good, it just means God saw it fit to give us instructions for how to deal with that type of situation. Any questions? Okay. So then the argument that, well, slavery is evil, therefore male headship, I don't know if they would say that male headship is evil. Some people would. Uh, That doesn't hold up. Because just because God is regulating slavery doesn't mean that male headship was also contrary to his design, especially when we can go back in Scripture and see that it was according to his design, which I think we've shown pretty clearly in previous lessons. The fourth objection we'll deal with is, uh, is women, women in ministry throughout the Bible. So some argue that women are involved in ministry, therefore a woman can do whatever ministry a man can do. And the problem is not with women being in ministry or ministering. The problem is when women take positions that are supposed to be reserved for men exclusively. So here are some of the common examples. Uh, Deborah is the first and, and maybe the most difficult example. Okay? Deborah was a judge. 
So she did have some type of a leadership position, it seems. However, she didn't have any military authority. And this is evidenced by the fact that she does not just command the army to go and deal with Sisera. Right? She actually tells Barak, summons him, and says, you know, you're supposed to take the army to deal with Sisera and the Canaanite army, right? And Barak is like, well, I'm a coward, so I'm not going to. Okay, he didn't actually say that. But he was a coward, and he didn't want to. He didn't want to do what the Lord would have him do. So she tells him, you need to do this. He says, I don't want to go. I'll only go if you go with me. And she says, okay, I'll go with you, but you are not going to take the glory for this victory. So God is going to give you the victory, but you're not going to take the glory for it. It's going to go to a woman. JL actually gets the, the, uh, the glory. So Barak says, that's, uh, Barak says, that's fine. He goes into battle. Uh, Sisera escapes to a tent, and JL puts a peg through his temple and kills him, and she's the one who gets the glory for the victory. So while Deborah was a, uh, a, uh, a judge... She didn't function in the way that other judges did. She didn't have military authority. She didn't try to, to use that military authority. She told Barak what to do and convinced him to do what was right. She also doesn't appear to have any priestly or teaching authority either. And here's something we also need to keep in mind as we're looking at all these, all these examples. None of them give us a super clear picture about what these women were actually doing. We don't have a robust view of what a, for instance, what a prophetess did. Whereas when we look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and these other prophets, when we look at the the men who served as priests in the temple, we know a lot about what they did. We have whole books written by them. We don't have that when it comes to these women. And so when you only have a small picture of what's going on, it's not real smart to build a whole theology off of that especially when we have a lot of other places in the Bible that give us light as to these issues, right? So we don't take obscure things when we have other things that are very clear and cut and dry and give us a very good picture of what we're supposed to do. The prophetesses are the other uh, objection. Uh, Miriam, Huldah, Noadiah, Anna, Philip's daughters, these are all mentioned as prophetesses. In terms of the Old Testament prophetesses, again, we know very little about their ministry. We know that uh, they seem to minister to women more than they would minister to men. They seem to be more private than public. We don't have writings from them generally. Uh, We don't have any examples of a female prophet who had a public ministry like that of uh, Isaiah or Ezekiel or even one of the minor prophets. Right? Obadiah is 21 verses, I think. Is that right? 20-something verses. The short, I think it's the shortest book of the, of the Minor Prophets. We don't even have that from a prophetess. Right? We just don't know a lot about them. And then um, we also know very little about these actual positions, what function they, they had. And so it does seem like if we're going to build a theology off of that, it's not really wise to do that. And like I said, we have, so much other, we have so many other scriptures in the Bible that give us instructions for the roles of men and women that to take the ones that are very obscure and say, well, 
this cancels out everything else that we know about what the Bible says about men and women, it really it seems like that's more of an agenda than exegesis. Priscilla would be the next example that people would bring up. Uh, Priscilla's mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Some people make a really big deal out of the fact that she's mentioned before her husband. I'm not really sure why they would make a big deal out of that, but they do. Uh, there's one example where uh, Priscilla, in Acts 18.26, kind of pulls Apollos to the side and kind of corrects him on, on some things. It seems like, you, let's, let's look at this uh, real briefly. Acts 18.26. So, Acts 18.26 Speaking of Apollos, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla, so actually the husband and the wife, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So people try to use that as a a way to say, see, women should be pastors. Women should be elders. Well, this is just one, one woman together with her husband, who takes someone aside privately and explains some things a little bit more clearly. There isn't a a robust teaching ministry here. It's not like there's an example of her going out and preaching in the synagogues. There's nothing like that there. So again, to build a theology off that uh, is not wise. Phoebe is another character in the Bible, uh, character, another person in the Bible and uh, she's called a diakonos in the Greek. And so sometimes that can mean deacon, but it can also simply mean a servant. It doesn't necessarily mean or have to mean someone who's been ordained to the diaconate. Junia is another woman or man. We actually don't know. So uh, she's another person or he is another person who they bring up uh, says that, they, that Junia is highly esteemed among the apostles. And so they say, well, Junia was a woman, and it says that she was an apostle. But that's actually not what it says. Number one, Junia could have been a man. So if you're going to make a theology off of this, you have to deal with that. You actually, we don't really know for certain if it was a man or a woman. And then secondly, saying that someone is highly esteemed among the apostles doesn't mean that they were an apostle, necessarily. It could just mean that the apostles highly esteemed them, right? The apostles had a high view of this person. Euodia and Syntyk is the, are the next two. These are women who served alongside Paul as workers, as contenders for the gospel. And so, you know, the argument goes, well, they were contending for the gospel, so that means that they, they must have been uh, pastors or, or something like that. But contending for the gospel does not happen only by elders or pastors or deacons. That does not necessitate that you are in a position of authority or have teaching authority. Millions of women contend for the gospel every day. And millions of women will contend for the gospel every day without being in a position of leadership. The next objection that comes up is the elect lady in 2 John. Uh, 2 John, he uses this term. So some have said, well, this is, this is uh, the lady of the church. Uh, that means that she is the pastor of the church. But this also doesn't hold up for several reasons. Um, first of all, 
it could have just been a prominent woman in that church that he, he wrote to. That's probably not what it is, though, because the letter actually uses, is addressed to multiple people, not just one person, and the Greek uses the second person plural, you all, throughout the book. So it doesn't really seem, if we're going to actually be honest about what's being written there, it doesn't seem like John is actually writing to a single person. Thirdly, the church is often spoken of in female imagery, right? The bride of Christ. So it could be that John's just using this, this female imagery in that letter. Again, even if he is writing to a single woman, why is it necessary that this woman is a pastor? And again, building a theology off of that, or even, even several of these, these things taken together, all of them are unclear. None of them give you a very clear picture of a woman who has been ordained and is serving in that capacity. Any questions? Okay. The, the final... Oh, sorry. I didn't see your hand. So you're, you're pretty much just talking about Right. No, because I think women have gifts and they should be used. So a woman could lead a children's ministry, for instance, I think, uh, or serve as a Sunday school teacher, or there's any number of things that women do much better than men that if we didn't allow women to do those things, the church would be worse off, much worse off for it. Um, and that, that's actually the last objection that people come up with is, well, women have gifts that should be used, and some women are gifted in teaching, so we should allow them to be pastors. But again, this is, this is not a good argument. Women do have gifts. We should not waste those gifts, and they're vitally important to the church. But an eye should function as an eye. A hand should function as a hand. And yes, people have even benefited from women who have taken up ministry positions that they shouldn't have. That is true. But that, does not, that is not the litmus test for how we should allow women to function in the church. Strictly looking at gifting and the benefits we receive from those gifts is not the basis for decisions about church leadership. The basis for church leadership has to be what the Bible teaches. So some have argued, made the argument, well, some women are really gifted, and the New Testament says that we're all priests, right? We have a the priesthood of believers. And so therefore, since everyone is a priest before the Lord, then that means that women can serve as elders, pastors, you know, ordained positions, other positions of leadership. The problem is that w- with this argument is the priesthood of believers is not a distinctly New Testament concept. Right? This was actually uh, spoken of in Exodus 19.6. It's an Old Testament idea. It's the 19.6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the priesthood of believers is an Old Testament idea, and yet in the Old Testament, only men served as priests. And so it, doesn't, it, it is not inconsistent with what the scriptures say of the, the whole body of Christ being a priesthood of believers. That doesn't mean that women can serve in the positions that men serve either. And all male eldership is not inconsistent in that sense. 
the other uh, argument that uh, that is made is, well, I just I sense that God is calling me to be a pastor. And suffice to say, making decisions based on feelings is not a compelling argument. So there, there is this idea, this, this idea of the inward call uh, of a man to be a pastor, and, and pastors have talked about this throughout the ages, but that is not the only test for whether a person should be a pastor or an elder. There is this subjective inward call, but that has to be uh, verified by an outward recognition. You say it's recognized by the elders of the church or, or by the, the presbytery. Uh, there have been, uh, I'm sure there have been women who have felt a sincere call to preach the gospel, to be a pastor. But you can be sincerely mistaken in your feelings. Right? Your feelings are not a guide, the scriptures are. And so that's why we don't base our decisions on feelings. We are out of time, so let's uh, pray. And if there you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them later. Our gracious God, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a good God, that you have given us uh, roles to fulfill. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom, you have gifted women and men in specific ways in different areas. We thank you that when the body functions uh, as the way it's supposed to, it is a blessing to your people. We pray that you would uh, help us remain humble in the way that we approach your word and uh, that we'd be willing to accept the things that you say because we know that everything you do is good for us, everything you've commanded is good for for us, for the body of Christ, and for your glory. We pray your blessing on the rest of this day, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.